The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image." And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your covenant, um, your, your many covenants that you've made with um, people who are after your own heart all throughout scripture and with us today through Jesus. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is just alive and active um, and that even, even passages that are thousands upon thousands of years old are still true and good and fitting for us today. So Lord, would we just honor and revere your word this morning? Um, would we understand, would your Holy Spirit bring understanding to us as Randall teaches the word? Um, and we just thank you for these stories. Thank you for um, your faithfulness to your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Mary. All right. Again, if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Genesis uh, chapter 8 and 9. We're going to be looking at that scripture today. And we're going to be finishing up 
the life of Noah today. And so it was a little short, a little condensed, but we're going to be looking at um, the gospel in Genesis, Noah, and uh, looking at this text of scripture. And last week, if you were with us, we talked about how there was a reason for the hope that we had. And so we look at Genesis 6, and we see the anticipation of the flood. And today we're going to be looking at the flood and what happens, Noah's ark. And, and so some of you have heard this story before, um, and you have grown up in church. And so some of you, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's not new, um, but for some of us, it, it might be brand new, uh, looking at this and, and reading through this and, and really seeing, okay, what is this story all about? And so as we think about that and we boil it all down, um, today it's, it's about this. It's a reason for faith. Last week is a reason for hope. This week it's a, a reason for faith. And so let's ask, what is faith? What is faith? Well, uh, this week I read an article entitled, I Never Expected to Doubt by Alyssa Childers. And, and she grew up in church. She grew up in church. And, and so here's what, here's what she said. She says, atheist Richard Dawkins defines religious faith as blind. In a debate with uh, John Lennox, he said, we only need to use the word faith when there isn't any evidence at all. But in the Bible, faith means trust, not blind belief. We all put our trust in various things of every, sing every single day. Every time we drive our car across a bridge, we trust it will hold up like it has many times before. We trust not because we have 100% proof, but because we have good evidence to believe the bridge won't collapse. You see, what she was talking about in this um, article that she wrote was how she had grown up in the church, but then had this this doubt that started to fill her heart. Was God really there? Is this true? Um, is the Bible trustworthy? And interestingly enough, as, as Dawkins was talking with John Lennox in this debate, um, one of the things that came up was this idea of faith. And, and John Lennox says that faith in the Bible sense is, is not blind. It's not blind. And that is in alignment with what the Bible says about faith, because here's how the Bible defines faith in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now this word for assurance in the Greek translated can also be translated as substance, firm, foundation, that it will hold under the weight when it's placed under something that's heavy. That's the word for assurance. And the word for conviction is this. It can be translated as a proof that by which a thing is proved or tested. See, faith, biblical faith, is not leaving your mind at the door, looking at today's text and say, well, that's just a nice story that I learned growing up as a kid. And, and so there's just some things that we can learn from it today. But, but actually, it is to think deeply on and say, did this really happen? Is this true? And as we think deeply on the things of God, we come to a real and true conviction about them. Because as I stand before you today, I believe that these things happened. But I've had to ask questions. I've had to wrestle. It's real faith that we're talking about today. 
You see, what separated Noah from everyone else during his time? Well, the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, really helps us with this. And it says this. And if you go down in in chapter 11, verse 7, it says, By faith, by faith, that same type of faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see, Jesus Christ, who lived 2,000 years ago, historical figure, we believe is the son of God, talked about Noah, and that Noah was a historical figure, and this story really happened. And so before we jump into this account, let me ask, Number one, this, this is two important questions. The first one is, some of us today are asking, who is Noah? Who is this? This guy, what, what was he about? Well, going back to what we talked about last week, Genesis 6, 8 through 10, here's what it says. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so we talked about last week how this word for favor is the same word used in the New Testament for the word grace. That Noah found grace. This unearned love, affection that God bestowed upon him. And so Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now in verse eight, we find that he was a graced man. He wasn't just a good man. So that's what we need to know about Noah first is that he was a graced man. Um, Noah was not a perfect man. Right? Sometimes in the Bible, we can lift up these biblical characters and, and put them on this pedestal and say, wow, look at how amazing they were. They're just these great people. But what we find is that he was a graced man. He wasn't a perfect man. And do you see that uh, grace in verse 8 comes before his righteousness? Right? It was God's grace, his love, his merit came before he was just this righteous person. Charles Spurgeon said about him, he says, there was nothing in Noah why God would, should make a covenant with him. He was a sinner and proved himself to be so in a most shocking manner within a few days. He was one of the best of men, but the best of men are, the be, are, are but men at the best and can have no claim upon the favor of God. He was saved by faith as the rest of us must be. Okay, so again, Normal person. You look, at, you look in the book of James, it talks about uh, Elijah. He says he was just a man, just like you. Right? So when we talk about these people, we don't lift them up on pedestals, but we see that God had given them grace. And so uh, verse 9 tells us a little bit more about him. It says he was willing to be different. Right? He was righteous. He was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Now what we looked about before, as we talked about the generation of Noah, is that it was corrupt. It was violent. But what separated, what what made him different was that Noah was not like that. He didn't live like that. And so he was distinct and different than the rest of his culture and his generation. Verse 9 says he walked with God, and so he had a relationship with God. Verse 10 says he had a family. And here's the thing about his family. Like, as you read through the book of Genesis, you're going to see some strange things in families. You're going to be like, hold on, he did what? He had how many wives? Like, what's going on here? 
Noah's just a normal guy because he's listening to God, right? Nothing crazy in his life. He's just got a normal family, pretty normal in comparison to the relationships we see in the, uh, the previous chapters before and even after. And so that's Noah. He's just a normal guy who's received the grace of God. And so the second question you're probably asking yourself, okay, like, yeah, I get it, Noah, but really, did, did this flood thing really happen? Was there, is there any evidence for a flood? Well, in an article written by uh, somebody who is not a, a Christian, uh, entitled, Was There Really a Great Flood? And uh, it's by Maria Tremarchi. And here's what she writes. She says, Stories of a great ancient flood pervade the mythology of hundreds of cultures. Westerners might be uh, most familiar with the story of Noah told in the Old Testament book of Genesis, but a great flood is reported to, in folklore from cultures around the world, from the Middle East to the Americas, India, China, and, and so, uh, Southern Asia, to name just a few. An ancient Babylonian uh, flood myth, the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, which probably some of you read and lit uh, in high school, tells us a, a story analogous of, uh, to that of Noah and his ark. Uh, while studying more than 200 flood myths, creationist author James Perloff uh, observed that a global flood was mentioned in 95% of the stories. People were saved in a boat, 70%. And in 57%, the survivors found respite on a mountain. If these hundreds of flood myths from a diff different locations, cultures around the world are any indication, something must have happened on earth to spur these accounts. Could there have been a global flood? Scientists have a few theories to suggest that yes, perhaps there was. All right, and as I'm doing study, I was reminded this week even um, that they, they don't know how to explain it, but on, on even the highest of mountaintops, there are traces of, of shells, seashells, at the tops of these mountains. They're like, you don't know how, how these got here, right? And so th there are different evidences and things like that where people who are not Christians are saying, okay, it's in different cultures, different places around the world. How, how could this have happened? And maybe, maybe it did, right? So there, we're not saying that there's no evidence for the flood, but the most important question is, okay, it's not, it's not like, okay, we're going to go do some research and see if the, this really happened. Because I believe it did. But it's, what, what does it all mean? What does it all mean? Wherever you're at today on the spectrum, like, what, what does this all mean? What does it mean that there was a flood, there was a guy named Noah? All of this. Well, the text today is Genesis 8, 29 through 17. And my hope today is that you will walk out of here stronger in your faith as we look at this text. Uh, the setting of this is that there was corruption on the earth. Genesis 6, 12 says, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had uh, corrupted their way on the earth. And so at this point... All of the earth has just got drifted so far from God. There was a rejection of God, rejection of his grace. You got to think about it for a minute. There's this guy, Noah, who's building this ark. It wasn't small, right? A huge ark. People have repl replicated this ark today. Massive ark. And you have to think, 
what did people say to him? What did people think about him? As he's building this, as he's telling people like, hey, God told me there's a flood coming. All of those types of things. Why are you building this? Right, this, this ark was a sign of God's grace. Right, it's like, are you going to believe? Are you going to have faith? Like, this guy has evidence. Are you, this is evident. Like, okay, we're building. No. Nah, what is that? You know, so, so that was happening during the time of, this is, a, again, true story. And so, so what, what does this all mean? What's the setting of this? So the flood happens. What does it all lead to? Well, Genesis 9-1 tells us that, that it, it leads to second chances. It leads to a fresh start. That in faith, it's possible to have a fresh start. Because in Genesis 9-1, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? As we've been looking through the book of Genesis, does that sound familiar? Because that's the same verbiage that God used in the garden. It's like, okay, let's start again. Be fruitful and multiply. Right, and so God is giving this fresh start. And, and so that's the setting of what's happening here. And so after the flood, what is God speaking to us through the story of Noah? Well, it's threefold. It's threefold, okay? And so, number one, it's the animosity. The animosity. Number two is the image. Number three is the promise. The animosity, the image, the promise. So the first one, because you're probably listening to some of this as Mary was reading, you're like, what does this all mean? Okay, and so um, in verses two through three, we see the animosity, okay? So... Here's what it says in verse two. It starts here. It says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that shall live, uh, that, that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So you're probably asking, okay, well, what's, what's the animosity about? What is that? This, this tension, this, this hatred, this, this distance, right? What, what is that animosity about? Well, look at verse 2. It says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. Now, this is an interesting Analysis is God is sending that he's saying, okay, be fruitful and multiply, but I got to tell you something here about the earth that you inhabit. That there's going to be a fear of you and a dread of you among creation. Among creation. You see, what, what did we just see before? That there was this violence, there was this, this thing upon the corruption upon the earth. He said, you got to know this about yourself. He says, there's going to be a fear of you and a dread of you. George Whitfield said something interesting. He says, haven't you ever noticed that when you come near the animals, they growl at us, they bark at us, the birds screech at us and fly away? Do you know why? They know that we have a quarrel with their master. 
Really interesting. They know that we have a quarrel with their master. There's a movie that came out in 2005. I watched it um, probably a year after it came out. It's called Grizzly Man. It's about this guy, Timothy Treadwell. He goes out into the wild and he says that his mission in life is to protect nature, to protect animals. And he loves grizzly bears. And so he's out there living amongst wild grizzly bears. For over a decade, he is out there living. But the thing is, he gets video of all the stuff that he's doing. Right, and and you're watching this movie and you're thinking to yourself, something's gonna happen to this dude. He's over there in the water with them, like trying to pet them. He's over there trying to hug bears. He's over here like talking to them, giving them names, all these types of things. And about halfway through the movie, the guy gets eaten by a grizzly bear. True story. He set himself as somebody who says, I'm going out into the wild and I'm going to go protect the grizzly bears and he gets eaten by one. And none of us watching the movie were like, wow, I'm really surprised. (laughs) Like, I'm really surprised that his friend just ate him. You know what I mean? Like, why would we not be surprised by something like that? It's because... We know that there's a tension. There's something when we look at creation that there there is a distance. There's something. And, and, And here's the thing. You, just like me, I look at animals and I think, man, they're my buddies. They're my friends. Right, like I, I had a connection with, I went to an aquarium one time. I had a connection with this beluga whale. I'm like, you know me, We're, we are friends. We are friends right now. But you know if I jumped in the tank, something would not, it would not be right. You know what I mean? Like there, there's just, we're like surprised by this. But there is something in us that says, man, I, I feel like I should be friends with them. But we live in a fallen world. There's something in us that feels that way because maybe we were supposed to be friends. Maybe there was a time when we were friends, but something happened in between and it's called the fall that has brought distance between us. Do you know what all creation is doing right now? Creation is praising God. Creation is praising the master. Psalm 9.1 says this. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Listen to this from Job. I, I never saw this till this week. And, and I found this text. It says, from Job 12, 7 through 10, he says, but ask the animals and they will teach you or the birds in the sky and they will tell you or speak to the earth and it will teach you or let the fish in the sea inform you which all, of all these does not know that the hands of the Lord has done this. In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. What's the thing that every creature on earth is not trying to do right now? It's not trying to be the own God of its life. But you know what is? You and me in rebellion against the creator, trying to be the God of our own life. 
Creation's just being what God created it to be. Yet we have rebelled. So what God is saying is that we are naturally at odds with creation because we are at odds with the creator. And so what the flood tells us is that we are naturally fallen in desperate need of God. Desperate need of God. Right? There's evidence of this. There's, there's things that we see. But secondly, the image. Look at verses five through six. It says, we could read this and like, what does this mean? And so it says, for, for your lifeblood, I will require reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall be his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So what he's saying here is this. He's saying that creation is different from you and me. There is a distinctness between you and me and the rest of creation. And that it says that, okay, from his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Like, well, what happens? We want justice, right? Like, we see, like, someone, another human being taken advantage of or hurt or killed. We say there needs to be justice for the person who took that life. There's something in us that, that fights for that. But yet it's different than the rest of creation. Right? There's something unique to you and me. What is it that makes you and me different from the rest of creation? Well, he says in verse six, he says, God made man in his own image. In his own image. This is called the Imago Dei. The image of God. Do you remember what it said about the world during the time of Noah? It says that, again, it was violent and so what we have to know is that that world rejected the image of God. It rejected it. And so when you reject the image of God, you can do whatever you want, right? Well, that, that person over there, they, they're not valuable. They're not special. They're not significant. When we devalue the worth of an individual, a person, racism, egoism, nationalism, superiority among others, what does it all lead to? It leads to violence. Violence. We see it raging in our country, in our world today. Violence. And currently we live in a very, I would say, humanistic, secular society. And what are the influences of that? We get Nietzsche. We get the thought that you're not significant. You're not special. You're you're not made in the image of God. There is no God. And what that opens the door for is, as we study through history, things like the Holocaust, Hitler. See, all he did was play out the implications of what it looks like to not have the image of God. To play out the superiority of one person among another. Right, let's follow this all the way through. Let's be intellectually honest. That's what it leads to. At least the thought that I am better than another person. But what equals the playing field? When God says, I made every human being in my image. Every human being in my likeness. You may say, well, we're not that violent of a society. Not, not like that, but 
do you know that in 2018, 47,000 people took their own life? And this is twice as many as murders. And I say that because there is not only a violence when you look at another person, you say, I'm better than that person, but there's a violence when you look at yourself in the mirror. There's a thought that goes through your head that you think, I'm not valuable, I'm not significant. And so maybe I might not take violence on another person, but I will on myself. And I want you to know that today you are made in the image of God and that he loves you and cares deeply for you and that the violence stops when you see the Imago Dei. See, when we base our existence on God and that I'm not a mistake, we start to see that all people are created significantly in God's image and deserve love, respect, care, kindness. So that means that everyone has intrinsic value and worth bestowed upon you by your creator. By your creator. This again points us to our need for God. So what's the end of this violence? What's the end of all of these things? It's the, the knowledge of knowing that you are made in God's image. And that's what he's pointing to here. The image is extremely important. Lastly, the promise. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and, and with, your, uh, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is uh, for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So verse nine, God says, I established my covenant. This covenant is... A binding agreement. A binding agreement. We're going to see more about that as we look at the life of Abraham, this, what this covenant means. But it's a costly covenant. It costs something. Okay? And so it's not just this agreement, this pledge of I'll never do this again. I promise. But God says there is a cost to it and somebody has to pay the cost to the covenant. So God's putting it in, in he's, he said, I establish it. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So again, why was there a flood? Because God in his righteous judgment, God is a judge, right? And again, we talked about this. Like it's hard for us to, to see that. Like, okay, I don't, I don't really want to see God as judge. I just want to see him as, you know, like this nice friendly guy. Like, but we see God as a holy judge, right? Like you, we get mad when we see uh, corrupt judges on earth. When bad things happen and they don't, they don't bring justice. Like what is that? Because we all have a desire for justice. It's, that's, because you're made in the image of God. And so we have this desire for justice, but yet we see this God who is completely just. And so in everything, it's like, when I look at the scripture, I say, okay, God was completely just in making this decision that there needed to be a flood. 
again, I wasn't there. I didn't see it. I didn't know the people, any of those things. But God righteously made this judgment. But then on the other end, we see that God himself is saying, okay, I am making this covenant that I'm not going to do it again. Right? He, he, he made this covenant of this is the righteous thing. This is the, the justice that needs to happen. But how is it that he doesn't just send flood after flood after flood because, well, the earth is corrupt. He says uh, there's a sign. Verse 12 and 13 says there's a sign. I have set my bow in the cloud. Now, what is this bow? Well, Many Hebrew scholars have looked at it and said, this is God's war bow. This is God's war bow of justice. And so, you know, we've got the gavel. This is actually God's war bow of justice. He says, I'm going to put it in the clouds. So when we look at a rainbow, we see it in the clouds. We say, okay, that's God's promise. That's God's promise of justice. And there are people who've talked about this over time. And one of them, again, was Charles Spurgeon. He says, okay, if that, that's God's war bow, and he put it in the sky, and we think about a bow, you think about the bow and like where it's pointing. He says, wouldn't you be a little nervous if it, the bow was actually the other way? The bow was like pointed. It wasn't like this. It, it's pointed U-shape. He said, wouldn't you get a little nervous if it was like that? He said, there's a reason why it's the other way around. He says, there's a reason why it goes up. He says, it's a reason because the judgment that we deserve is not anymore, it's not shooting down at us, but it's actually turned around and shooting up towards heaven. That God's arrows are not shooting down at us. His war bow is not shooting down at us, but it is shooting up into the heart of heaven. Who is in the heart of heaven? It was Jesus Christ himself. It's the gospel. It's the good news that God, who's righteous, who's holy, who has every right to judge humanity, says, no longer will I point my war bow down at you, but I will point it at myself. It is like my friend uh, Nancy said today, is that God saves us from God. God is saving us from God himself because he is a holy God. And instead shooting the bow and arrow at us, he says, I will do it to myself. Because one day there would be one who would come And God's war bow of judgment would come and aim directly at him and pierce him through the heart. What is the cross? It's God's wrath, judgment, punishment, not coming down on humanity, but coming down on his son. Why is the cross so important? It's because God himself is saving us from the wrath that we deserve the punishment that we deserve. What's the promise? That there's a God who loves us so much that he say, I will take that on for you. And so every time you look at the sky, it should point us to the cross. It should point us to what Jesus has done.
The arrow has gone through the heart of God himself. And so just some quick takeaways. What can build our faith today? First, number one, listen for the song of creation. Some of you, you just need to get away in nature. You need to go on a hike. You need to go on these things. And, and, and what, what happens is this. It's like you see that the world is so much bigger than the little world that you got right here in your mind, right? The things that you look and you say, wow, okay, the ocean is still there and it's still in its place, right? And like, I can look at it and, and everything's going on out there. There's like a whole world going on underneath the ocean right now that I don't even know about. And God made all that. He can take care of me. He can provide for me. You know, one of the things it says in uh, Genesis chapter eight, it says that God was going to keep the seasons going. And you're like, okay, while, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What does it all point to? What does it all point to? should point us to the gospel. Remember when we talked about the gospel? It said God created everything good. And then there was a fall. And then there was a redemption. Then there's going to be a restoration. What do we see in the seasons of the year? We see a winter time. A fall. Right? We see all these things. And then we see the springtime. The summertime. All of these things are like set into creation, just kind of flowing through. And so Martin Luther once said, he said, our, our Lord has written the promise of resurrection, not in words alone, but in every leaf in springtime. You want evidence? Look around. Look at the creation. Look at what God has done. He says, I'm going to leave that there for you to see that I'm there to build your faith. So I encourage you. Go on a hike. Take it in. See that creation is all around you and that God has made it and that creation is singing and praising him. It's praising him. Number two, look for the Imago Day. And I said in others, but I also want to include in yourself that you're a creation of God, that you're a miracle of God, that you are here. It's a miracle. On Friday was my daughter Elle's birthday. And I remember when she was born. And, and I remember looking at her for the first time and thinking to myself, you are an absolute miracle. You're a miracle. And I don't know what your life holds and I don't know what's before you, but I remember like driving, like, like literally like when my kids were like born, I've got three kids. I remember them being born and there's like this thing that comes over you where you're like, holding on to the steering wheel and just like, man, I've really got to be careful while I'm driving right now. I don't white knuckle like, oh, you know, driving. But I'll tell you, I did. When I realized that these miracles of God were in the back seat. And I'm just like, wow. Wow. And if no one's ever told you that before, and maybe you say, well, no one's ever felt that way about me. I just want you to know that God does. And you are worthy of that. 
You are absolutely worthy of that because God made you. So don't ever think differently. Last is learn the meaning of grace. There's a guy in the 1600s, he's a pastor. His name's John Bunyan. He was arrested for preaching the gospel multiple times. This guy was thrown in prison. He wasn't, he wasn't like the, the brightest guy. Like people like, what is it about John Bunyan? I don't know. But, but some of the most brilliant preachers like Jonathan Edwards, like I, I, I listen to this guy. I've listened to his sermon. It's like, I know he believes it. And he draws me in. And so this guy, John Bunyan, what happened to him? He says, well, he, he was writing his journals, uh, uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners is what it's called. Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Here's what he says. He says, one day I was passing into a field with some dashes on my conf- conscience, fearing yet that all was not right. And, and here's the thing he struggled with. He struggled with God loving him. He struggled with, does God really love me? He says, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. He says, your righteousness is in heaven. Because he struggled. He's like, am I really righteous? Am I really loved by God? And and then he says, it just struck him. It's like, your righteousness is in heaven. I thought I, he says, I thought I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There was my righteousness. Wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me that I lacked his righteousness for that was ever before me. Moreover, I saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Here's what he says. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed, I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. From that time, those dreadful scripture of God quit troubling me. Now I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. He looked into heaven and he saw the promise and it built his faith. It's the thing he needed more than anything was to know that his goodness, his righteousness, his standing before God, being made in the image of God, it was all made right when he looked into heaven. So that's my encouragement to you today. Grace is found in the promise when you look up. And so let me ask you today, do you see it? Do you see it? And will you let that build your faith? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for those that have gone before us, people like Noah, who is not a perfect man, but he had your grace on his life. And so I pray that over everyone here today, that we won't go about today just on our own strength, but see that, God, there is grace available to us right now in this moment. 
and that you've sought us. You've looked for us and that we didn't end up here by accident. So if there's anyone here who's never placed their faith in you, I pray that today will be the day that they look up and see Jesus. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.